This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. And so it's hard for us to put aside our competition and our pride. I don't think anybody has as much problems with pride as pastors. You know, we deal with eternal things, and so we always trump everybody. I always tell people that pastors can make a good theological argument for painting a sanctuary black based on Scripture. And I only say that because that's an indication of how devious we can get and how much we can deny our own motivations and, um, and just, just completely not know ourselves at all. And you heard David say earlier that Calvin starts the Institutes out by saying that the two, the two parts of religion are to know ourselves and to know God. And it seems like, since most of us are Reformed, the one thing we should know is ourselves. But it seems like increasingly in the reform world, we, just, we think it's a principle to not know ourselves. And I think we as pastors are the ones that create that because we as pastors don't see our sin, don't confess it to our wives, train our wives not to rebuke us. And then, of course, we don't have fellowship with each other. Who wants to have fellowship with a pompous ass? What did you say, Joseph? <laughs> what did he say? We'll have better fellowship if he's there. He said, I'll be in the other room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm coming in with uh, with a lot of thoughts on this subject. About five years ago, I was asked, well, let me back up. Um, my first church, my wife's in my first church out of seminary, was um, in rural Wisconsin. It was a little town of 1,500. And our manse was next to the church, and you knew they were related to each other because both of them had black trim and were white, and they were right next to each other. Right behind us was the uh, funeral home. So it was one of these situations in a small town where they owned the uh, uh, furniture store and the funeral home. And the woman that ran the funeral home... um, Periodically, she'd have nobody to bury people, and so I was the one that she would turn to. She'd ask me to bury people. Plus, my churches, especially my town church, I had two churches eight, eight miles from each other, a yoked parish is what they call it. And my, my town church, I'd almost say the average age was 85. I mean, it was really old, and I can remember being so depressed that nobody close to my wife's and my age with our children were in, were in those churches. You know, there just weren't people our age there, especially in the town church, and thinking, Lord, the rest of my life, am I just going to be burying people? And so I think in the first three years of ministry, I think I buried 39 people. And a lot of them were people who were... Uh, 
indigent or uh, had no church or for some reason the funeral home, either there or over in Portage, they would ask me to do these funerals. And um, so, so I did a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals. And honestly, I, I, David and I and Nathan, the three brothers, we would talk, and all three of us agreed we'd rather do ten funerals than one wedding. And pastors usually understand what we mean by that, which is that weddings are so proud. And then you deal with who sits where at the rehearsal, hopefully, is where you deal with it. You know, you got divorced people, and they hate each other's guts, and you got the girlfriend, you got all this stuff. So the combination of pride and the broken homes, it's, it's like a minefield. But you go into a funeral, and typically funerals are humble. But then I remember going to a funeral up in Wisconsin Dells. I don't know why I was there. I don't know whose funeral it was. But um, it was in a Methodist church, United Methodist, and I sat about two-thirds of the way towards the back on the right side. And I sat behind a row of four or six people, three couples, Um, who, as we prepared for the service, they, all they were talking about was gambling and their latest trip to the casino. And so here some friend of theirs was about to be buried, and I'm sitting behind them, and my hair is standing on end. The godlessness and callousness um, I don't think I'd read Psalm 73 at that point in my life, even though I was a pastor. But man, it was Psalm 73. And I realized that America was moving into a different day. That even in the funeral, in the church, right as we're about to bury someone, there was absolutely no fear of God. None. Just callous jocularity about gambling with couples that were getting close to their end. Then we moved to Bloomington, and the first church we served, nobody ever died there. You know, there might have been a couple of funerals, but there weren't many. Um, it was a middle-aged congregation when I got there. Um, so very few funerals in Bloomington, and then our church now... We might have a death, what, every two years? If that, what, what would you say, David? Yeah, that's probably about it. Well, who do you think it's going to be this year? <laughs> Go to more funerals than we have, yeah. And about five years ago, Mary Lee and I bought a piece of property west of town here, and uh, the man that developed it with his wife had cancer, and right after we bought the property, he died, and they didn't have a church, he wasn't a believer, and they asked me to come and, uh, and officiate at the funeral. Well, I knew what that was. It's not like 
a wedding where the bride's mother tells you what to do. You know? At a funeral, generally, you tell everybody else what to do. I mean, you don't have to. There's just a certain pattern, a certain routine. You go through it. And the funeral director tells you which end is the head in the casket. And that's, that's about all you need to know to do a funeral. There is no fear of God today. There's no fear of God. None. And that's almost as bad in Reformed churches as it is in non-Reformed churches. People don't tremble. Death is natural. You, you know, you've heard David and, and, and David, both of them, Max and David, tell us what death is today. And we're just so cocksure of our destiny and that Jesus is just giggling with excitement to see us come into heaven. And then death comes. Then death comes. And because we're so proud and because we believe in evolution, we believe in progress. We believe that we have arrived at the point in time when finally we're able to dispense with all those stupid idiots that came before us in church history and just, just ruminate on the text and come up with wonderful insights. You know, which is, you know what I'm talking about. And so we have men who are looked up to by all the young reformed pastors talking about how death is good. Yeah? He's like the Energizer Bunny. Death is good. Death is good. I'm telling you, death is good. Death would have been in the garden. If death hadn't been in the garden, Adam and Eve were breeding like rabbits. Death is good. Now, after, what I didn't say is that after that man got up and talked about death being good and, and it would have been in the Garden of Eden even without the fall because otherwise they were breeding like rabbits and there wouldn't have been enough room and he said that twice in three minutes. I went up to him afterwards and I asked him whether he had thought about the issue of cremation and what he thought about cremation. And immediately his posture was, well, you know, I don't see any problem with cremation. Well, of course he doesn't. Of course he doesn't see any problem with cremation. The whole world has been waiting for me to come. And I'm bright. And I have thoughts. You know, you remember that old Monty Python routine? Remember? <coughs> the theory. <coughs> this is like the whole reform world, men clearing their throats with theories. And boy, we just think we're God's gift to the world. And you know something? I used to be that way. I still am. But David's more. Because he's smarter. You heard him. He's smarter. Come on, put up your hands if you agree. Yeah, see, David Carell says, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, it's the only one that has the courage to tell me. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I was young reading the quote by G.K. Chesterton that a Democrat objects to a man being excluded from the electoral process from voting because of skin color or race or religion. But the, the traditionalists... It, objects to him being excluded because of death. 
And then he says, tradition is the democracy of the dead. Okay? And I can trace my growth in humility and submission to the church and to God from reading that quote. Where all of a sudden I realized I wasn't God's gift and truth was not getting better. But rather, everybody was so conceited that they were just turning around and laughing at everybody that had come before them. They were going to confess the the sins of their slaveholding ancestors, and they were going to confess the sins of their grandfathers and great-grandfathers who didn't love their wives as much as they did and as sensitively as they did. And, you know, just the conceit around us. And so here we are. We're a generation that just thinks that God was waiting for us to come on the scene and give the world our insights, right? And we hit the issue of cremation, and I'm telling you, it's like this right now as we talk. It's everywhere. It's probably above 35% of the deaths in America today. It is the majority in Colorado, okay? And we're all going... You know, we have no clue. You know, well, I suppose, well, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't know, you know? And that's about the depth of the Reformed, that's about the depth of anybody about cremation. It's like, you know, didn't see that one coming. It's been coming for a long time. And we just don't see it coming. And we got this woman up here. And she's leading the funeral service for her dad and berating all these people, you know. And we have, and it's wacko. And it's like, I talked to guys, I talked to this man at this conference, and he said, what do you think about cremation? Well, what's wrong with cremation? And the only thing he could think to say was, well, you know, uh, it doesn't jeopardize the It doesn't jeopardize uh, the resurrection of the body. You know, this famous person over here said that, but it it doesn't jeopardize. Well, yeah, it doesn't jeopardize the resurrection of the body that you're cremated. You know, of course not. But can you imagine that being the depth? You've spent your life writing blog posts and books and speaking at conferences, and you're fast approaching death. You're quite close. And somebody asks you about cremation, all you can say is, well, God can still raise you from the dead. (laughs) You know, it's like, dude, come on. Now, let me just ask you, right off the top of your head, right? If you were to want to assume that everybody that came before us was right and not wrong, right? You get what I'm saying? If we had a basic orientation, we're not Roman Catholics, still sola scriptura, but we had a basic orientation that the guys that have come before us probably actually were superior to us in their understanding of scripture, their knowledge of scripture, their study of scripture, and their love for their wives and daughters and mothers. If we had a basic orientation of humility towards those who came before us, what do we think they said about cremation? What do you think? Come on. Yeah, don't do it. Huh? Yeah, that is pagan. All right, now, if you were to ask them to give you a reason why you shouldn't do it, what do you think they'd say? Just just off the top of your head. 
and nobody that studied it. Just off the top of your head. Come on. It's not natural in what way? Okay, and it's also not natural. I mean, I, I agree with you, but it's also not natural what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you going to say? Yeah, it's not natural decomposition, but it's also not natural what? Come on. It's not natural. <laughs> Come on, think about this. It's not natural for, for, for a wife to put her husband into a fire. You see what I'm saying? It's not natural to take your loved one and put them in a fire. Can you see this? It has to require a certain level of sophistication in a brain. You know, the kind of sophistication you generally will get at a university. You know how Joe Sobrin used to say that there are many things that only the educated can believe. Okay? And always, that has been what's characteristic of cremation. Cremation has always been practiced by what? The sophisticated. So in the Middle Ages, absolutely nobody, nobody cremated in the Middle Ages. Why? Well, because Christendom, when it came to Europe, it removed paganism, and central to paganism was cremation. And so you can have, you can have an, uh, I'm trying to remember who this is. Um, Oh, Samuel Clemens. Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. You can have Mark Twain writing Life on the Mississippi, all right? And in Life on the Mississippi, he goes off on cremation, and he says, I want to be cremated, and he puts this picture in the book. Have any of you seen this picture? It's fascinating. Okay, here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this around, but make it quick, okay? He puts this picture in the book. And who is that in the picture? Do you know, Nate? Who do you think it is? It's Mark Twain. He puts a picture of himself being cremated in, in his book, Life on the Mississippi. And he has his arm up in the air like this, all right? And his wife sees it when it's just started being printed. And what do you know about Mark Twain's wife? She was a Christian until the end. And then she apostatized after years of living with the man. And she saw this picture and she said to her husband, stop the printing, I want that out of the book. All right, and so Twain gave in to her, stopped the printing, had that pulled out, and now one of the best collector items in America, other than uh, To Kill a Mockingbird signed by Truman Capote. All right, that's a joke, but. <laughs> All right, the, the, one of the most valuable books in America is one of those first editions where it actually has this picture of Mark Twain being cremated in Life on the Mississippi. And he says something like, you know, finally, after 2,000 years, we can get back to cremation. Now, think about that, people. Mark Twain understands that turning away from cremation 
is the confession of Christian faith. Okay? Joseph Stalin wanted to be cremated. And generally, Joe Stalin got what he wanted. But after he died, he didn't get what he wanted because you know what happened to him. They went ahead and they embalmed him so that people could view him. He was buried about nine years later. The communists wanted people to be cremated. But you know, they couldn't do it. And so as Vestia, the state newspaper in about 1961-62, had an article where they admitted that there was only one crematory in all of Russia. So this is after decades of them trying to get people. You know what people did in Russia during the Soviet Union empire? Do you know what they did? When they died, they would take them back to their home and they would have last rites and bury them. Isn't that something? And so communism tried hard. Mao Zedong tried hard. The intellectuals have always tried hard. If you look demographically, you'll find that the practice of cremation is correlated to education and sophistication. You will find in America today that the more uh, reprobate, now that's not the word the press would use, but it's my word, the more reprobate a part of the country is, or a state, the higher the percent of cremation to inhumation or to burial. Okay, so, so of course Colorado. Now, in 15 years, it went like this. It went from the vast majority being buried to the vast majority being cremated. Okay? Here is... uh, Okay, so, Joseph Stalin wished to be cremated, but in 1960, or 1953, uh, he died. They, They embalmed him. And then they didn't bury him, I think, until like 59, 60, 58, somewhere like that. Prior to World War II, the only nation in Eastern Europe with a crematorium was Romania. Prior to World War II. With the spread of Christendom across the centuries came the ending of the practice of cremation, which had been the norm among the pagans. The only time cremation was sanctioned in Christendom was when there was a massive uh, uh, death on the battlefield and they had to dispose of a lot of bodies at once. Or if there was a very um, public health, uh, a bad plague, something like that, and they needed to control for the contagion. In the Middle Ages, despite the universal opposition to Christians, Unbelievers, such as pure rationalists, if if there is such a man, and also those whose faith was classicism, were the only ones that ever talked about cremation. You know what a classicist is? It's somebody whose faith is sort of uh, in, uh, well, it's their faith, their hope, their love is the ancient world. The first crematorium in the United States was built in Washington, Pennsylvania in 1876. The first one. Cremation was first carried out in the United Kingdom in modern times when a pagan Welsh doctor tried to cremate his dead infant son. The people of his community opposed his attempt 
And so the matter was appealed to the courts. Finally, the courts decided there was no law against it, and he was free to proceed. So in 1884, William Price carried out the first United Kingdom cremation in modern times. The following year, 1885, another cremation followed, this one of Miss, Mrs. Jeanette Pickersgill in London. And that was the first one in England, and that was 1985, or 1885. Across the ages, the Roman Catholic Church banned cremation and refused to allow her priests to participate in funerals where the body of the dead had been cremated. The practice of cremation was well understood to be an expression of paganism, a confession of faith. And it was understood that it was the denial of the resurrection of the body and it was repudiation of faith in God. Always, everywhere. Thank you, dear brother. Isn't that something? The cremation of his infant son, William Price, this Welsh guy, was accompanied by prayers, pagan prayers. Okay? Cremation was understood to be an act of blasphemy. Then, in 1966... The decade of reform, you must understand. Some of us lived through it, right? That's what we all call it, the decade of reform, right? In the 60s, Pope Paul VI, successor of Pope the 23rd, who with John the 23rd presided over Vatican II, declared cremation to be acceptable for Roman Catholics. Then in 1966, priests finally were declared free to preside over funerals where the deceased had been cremated. And yet even then, and still today, the Vatican does not allow the ashes of the deceased to be kept in the family home or to be scattered. The ashes must be put in an urn that's kept in an urner area or whatever they call those things, you know, the place where all the urns with the ashes are. Or they have to receive pro burial, proper burial in the ground, the ashes. Isn't that interesting? And so really, even when the Roman Catholic Church after Vatican II, burial wins out in the long run. Interestingly, set of vacantis, which is just uh, Latin for chair vacantis, all right, and the most famous one, the only famous one is, come on, you all know, well, that's, yeah, Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson takes his own priest with him. He doesn't believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the Roman Catholic Church anymore. He believes it's in heresy because of its doctrinal unfaithfulness, particularly starting with Vatican II. And so these guys are called set of vacantists or vacantists. Which is it, David? S-E-D-E-V-A-C-A-N-T-I-S-T. All right. And the permissiveness regarding cremation is one of their objections to why they say the Roman Catholic Church is now heretical. Okay? And so we see that with the growth of the Christian faith across the world, the pagan practice of cremation died out, and it wasn't until what? The end of the 19th century that pagans were emboldened to try to start it up again. 
So at the beginning of the 20th century, cremation was starting to have a little bit of a comeback, okay? And then what happened? What happened was the Third Reich. Cremation and its practice took a hit with the mass cremations of the Third Reich's death camps such as Birkenau and Auschwitz. This was the first time in history when thousands of men, women, and children were placed in the fire and their bodies reduced to ashes as an act of hatred and destruction. First time in history. Little children were placed in the trenches where they caught on fire and were consumed by the flames. Many of those children were thrown into the fires while they were still alive. We have testimony for people who were present of seeing the SS soldiers loading the little ones into wheelbarrows which were wheeled over to the ravines where they were dumped and their bodies caught fire and witnesses reported, quote, living children burned like torches. And this is the Holocaust. And the word Holocaust is what? The word Holocaust is the Hebrew word for what was placed on the altar and burned. That's where it comes from. Following the Holocaust, there was not a large movement to dignify and grow the practice of cremation for the next few decades. But then in the early 60s, when there was less than 5% of the bodies of the dead being cremated here in this country, cremation from that time on has, has, has grown and grown, and now it's all the rage. As I say, in Colorado now, it's, it's the norm. And it's only growing. Now, in the Old Testament burial, because of the climate, the bodies of the Hebrews were buried almost immediately, almost always within 24 hours. And this was to escape the rapidity of decomposition which was accelerated in such a hot climate and the stench that it brought with it. It also was to keep to a minimum the defilement that the body of the dead carried with it due to the demands of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And so the longer the body's there, the more people are defiled. And so we read in Numbers 19, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And so the quicker you get the body in the ground, the less inconvenience it causes to everybody around it, right? You all with me? Immediate burial was commanded by God even in a case where a criminal was hung from a tree. We read in Deuteronomy 21, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So even somebody who's executed, hanging on a tree has to be buried immediately. And so we see, for instance, Ananias, you remember in the book of Acts. And as he heard these words, Acts 5.5, 5, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. And then later in verse 9, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test to his wife Sapphira? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out at well, as well. And then verse 10, immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last, 
And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Okay? Lazarus was buried the very day of his death. We read in John eleven seventeen when Jesus came, he found, it says, that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Because then in verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And of course, our Lord was buried immediately by that dear man. Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> you know, you just, you just don't think of him being a dear man. But what a sweet, sweet man. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance to the tomb and went away. Isn't that beautiful? So burial, 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 burial. You get the theme. And the bodies of the deceased were lovingly prepared for burial. John 12, 7, therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Remember that? And then John 19, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came after Jesus died, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Mark 16, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices, so that they might come and anoint. What do you think it says there? So that they might come and anoint. That's right. David gets it. So that they might come and anoint him. Him. Luke 24, 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. John 19, 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Matthew 27, 59, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Mark 15, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. The Roman historian Tacitus noted that the Hebrews' burial of their dead, rather than burning them, was a matter of religious piety. Other than Egypt, where the bodies of the dead were embalmed, cremation was the universal practice of the ancient world. But not the Hebrews. They buried their dead, and usually in holes hewn in rock. Genesis 50, 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land 
to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. It's, I think, the only place in Scripture where any mention is made of a coffin, but you understand why. Then, 300 years later, 300 years later, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And then, 40 years later, now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. It was a terrible curse if your body was not buried. It was this curse that God placed on King Jehoiakim when the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about him, Jeremiah 22, 19, he will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And the Jewish historian Josephus confirms that this is what happened to the body of King Jehoiakim. For the most horrific crimes, cremation was actually commanded by God. Leviticus 21.9, also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Others were similarly cursed by the absence of burial, and the absence of burial was the fundamental reality of cremation. Take, for instance, Achan and his family, Joshua 7.15. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. And then Joshua 7.25, Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. In fact, there was nothing worse than to be denied burial after death. 2 Samuel 21, 10 and 11, And Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. 1 Kings 13, he said, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. In 1 Kings 14, 11, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. 1 Kings 16, 4, anyone of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven shall eat. 2 Kings 9.10, the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Jeremiah 7.33, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Jeremiah 9.22, thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field. 
and like the sheaf after the reaper, but no one will gather them. Psalm 79.3, they have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Revelation 11.9, those from the people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. You know, you think about the horror. And I, I don't have time to read it, but the horror of what happened to Jezebel. How could anybody have ever read that? And not just have it burning in your mind. And what's central to it? What's central to it is she wasn't buried. She wasn't buried. Same thing happened to Ahab's offspring. And then this, Locus Classicus, okay? Amos 2.1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. On this condemnation of Moab, Calvin says this. We may simply take what the prophet says, that the body of the king of Edom had been burnt. For the prophet, I doubt not, charges the Moabites with barbarous cruelty to dig up the bodies of enemies and to burn their bones. This is an inhuman deed and wholly barbarous. Now, when they exceeded all moderation in war and raged against dead bodies and burnt the bones of the dead, it was, as I've said, an extremely barbarous conduct. The meaning then is that the Moabites could no longer be born with, put up with. For in this one instance, they gave an example of savage cruelty. Had there been a drop of humanity in them, they would have treated more kindly their brethren, the Idumeans. But they burnt into lime, that is, into ashes, the bones of the king of Edom, and thereby proved that they had forgotten all humanity and justice. <clears throat> I have this unfortunate habit, which is that while I'm preaching or teaching, I look at you. And I always envy Edwards, because it, we're told that Edwards would just fix his gaze. You know... <laughs> And so he had a clear mind, and my mind is never clear, ever. And I can tell right now that some of you are getting a little hostile towards me. And I know, I think I know why. And I think that the reason is that your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your neighbor has been cremated. And now you realize that you're in a hard place because it's already... The gap in the wall is already established. You don't have any, any way of figuring out how on earth. You can even listen to me. Because what are you going to do? Right? I mean, Tim, there's so many important battles to fight. This one doesn't matter. But listen... That's the truth about absolutely everything that matters to us today. That's the truth about sexuality. It's the truth about homosexuality. It's the truth about marriage. It's the truth about uh, the nature of honesty. It's true about work. And have you tried to teach a young man to work recently? I mean, there's so many more important things. What about the gospel? 
you know? And listen, we're not the first generation that has to stop and back up. And that's what reform is. David, my brother, taught me some, he's taught me tons and tons of things through the years. But one of the most helpful things was for him to make the point to me that there's a difference between a revolution and a reformation. Okay? Put those two things together and think about them. French Revolution. Liberty, fraternity, or you say it, come on. You say it. I mean, it's so gay, but go ahead and say it. You guys have to hear how gay this is. Come on, say it. Uh, what is it? Liberté, fraternité. Égalité. Égalité, c'est ça. Uh, with the emphasis on the gay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the French Revolution. But what's a reformation? It begins with the first of Luther's 95 theses, when our Lord Jesus said we must repent. He was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. That's a reformation. And so, let me talk to you a little bit about the Puritans. What happened with the Roman Catholics? What happened was the Roman Catholic Church, have any of you read Justification by Buchanan? If you want to understand how to deal with Roman Catholicism, read Justification by Buchanan. It's a hard read, but read it. And as I read it probably the third time, I realized that all, all of the conflict between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism is essentially boiled down to the fact that the Roman Catholic Church is a mercantile operation. And the minute you approach the Roman Catholic Church thinking money, all right, it becomes clear. Now you know why there are seven sacraments. Now you know why there's infusion. All of it makes clear once you think as a businessman. And so the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages needed lots of money. Why? Well, they needed lots of money because, of, uh, because they had decided that they were going to have glorious architecture and beautiful painting, that they were going to win the culture wars. Any of you tracking with me? Okay, all right. And so they hired a man named what? Michelangelo. And they needed lots of money to pay him. And so they sent out a man named what? And he began to sell what? And those indulgences had a little marketing uh, scheme. And can any of you repeat the marketing scheme? Yeah, the marketing scheme is, you know, the minute the coin hits the box, the soul springs free. Now, why did they say that? They said that because they'd come up with the doctrine of purgatory. And purgatory is the place where you go and suffer for your venial, not your mortal sins, long enough until you're purified and can go to heaven. In other words, the continuation of the infusion of this life. And they say that works of supererogation works that are so good by a person who's so disinterested accrue a financial value that adheres to the papacy 
and it's called the Treasury of Merit, and they say that the church has the ability of selling from that Treasury of Merit in such a way that people that are in purgatory are sprung. That's the entire basis of the indulgence sales of the Middle Ages. All right? It's all based on purgatory. It's all based on the concept that after somebody dies, you can still have an impact on them that saves them from suffering. Okay? This is the whole Middle Ages. This is everything in the Roman Catholic Church. And this is what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Knox and all the rest of them were up against. And so can you take a wild guess what happened to burial ceremonies at the time of the Reformation? It was much worse than anything we have today. Because at that time, you had prayers for the dead, you had the sale of indulgences, you had people held like this over the fear that they would have to mortgage themselves to get their loved ones out of purgatory. You had all kinds of superstitious ceremonial stuff going on around the grave, around the burial, around the death. You had last rites. It was just a, a, a humongous apparatus that produced money for the Roman Catholic Church. And so what did the Puritans do? What do you think they did? You know, the window, the window, <laughs> the second story window. The Puritans came along and, and they were wild-eyed believers. And they just started cleaning. Have you ever seen your wife when it's springtime? You know, and it's like it hits one day, and pretty soon everything you treasured that you inherited from your grandfather is gone. You know, if your wife is like mine, or you come back to your house and it's 40 degrees. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so that's what the Puritans did. All of a sudden, in England, all of a sudden, there were no funerals at the church anymore. And not only weren't there funerals at the church, but you were not allowed to say prayers either before the, the funeral procession or at the grave. Because we have records of one time when one preacher actually did make the mistake of praying in the house before they left in the funeral procession to carry the casket to the grave. And it's written down because it was so notable. And we look at this and we think, are you kidding me? They didn't think you should pray at the grave? You can't be serious. And I'm absolutely serious. They would not allow anything to be done that would jeopardize their belief that it is what? Appointed what? Unto man what? Once to die and after this the judgment. Does this make sense to you? Because they knew the souls of their people hung in the balance. And so they cleaned, unbelievably cleaned. And so people were buried, but they were buried in simplicity. Absolute simplicity. The closest you came to anything being done for the body is that it was very common for them to draw up little poems about the dead. 
And they, 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 it was very expensive at the time. You know, Edward's sermons were written on the sheets of paper that his people gave him as prayer requests. That's how expensive paper was at the time. Well, they, they ornately decorate and write up these poems, this doggerel verse, really. And then they'd put it on the casket so that you could refer to the shroud, the paper shroud around the casket. All right? They did not allow. They would have a, they would have a, a, a sermon in connection with the death. It would be three or four days later. And in that sermon, you know what was absolutely true? You were not allowed to eulogize the death, uh, the dead person. You're not allowed to do it. Why? Because they did not want lying. They didn't want lying. How many, how many of you have sat through lie after lie at funerals? Every, look at your hands. It's awful. It's awful. And so the Puritans came along and the Puritans reformed. Absolutely reformed. You know, you were not going to continue to lie at funerals. You're not going to continue to sell salvation surrounding death and the death of your loved ones. Okay? Do you know something else that's interesting? From the time of the Restoration, you all of a sudden begin to have uh, funeral stones and monuments in England. None prior to the Restoration. You know why? You know what the Puritans did? Have any of you ever been to Winchester Cathedral? Remember the song in the 60s? Winchester. Well, Mary Lee and I and our kids went. And it has, a, you know, the huge stained glass window, the rose window, right? But the Winchester Cathedral window is like a Picasso. Why? Anybody know? The Puritans absolutely smashed it to smithereens. Why? Because they were iconoclasts. They were opposed. Uh, Prynne, any of you know William Prynne the Puritan? He, he, I, well, David, you've got to hear this. David will appreciate this. Um, Prynne says something to the effect that, well, I'm not going to be able to find it. But he says, uh, hey, I might find it. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, just a second. Oh, my. All right, I'm going to give up. Okay. Well, Prince said something to the effect that you can be led as easily into idolatry through stained glass as you can through pictures. You know? And so, you know what the Puritans did in England? They went around to all the graves. And you know what they did? They took stones and stuff, and they completely eviscerated the images on the gravestones of the ancestors. That was the most common iconoclasm in Puritan England. Not the churches, not paintings. They went around to the, to the, to the graves, and they removed all the images on the graves. Isn't that something? And, you know, we sit here and we think, those poor savages, you know, they're so ignorant. Don't they know that we can have pictures in our pocket that we pull out anytime we want? It just doesn't, doesn't, have, doesn't, doesn't have any effect on us. <laughs> now, why am I doing that? Well, because 
we're, well, I, yeah, it's hard to explain why I'm doing that. Yeah, 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 that's what I thought of. Yeah. Were you comfortable with that? Oh, oh. I know. <laughs> so one of the things they wouldn't allow is they wouldn't allow there to be any portraits of the dead loved ones in the houses. And I just ha have this, David and I both hearing this, think of this huge portrait of my dad that was like in the shrine in my mother's house. And I never liked it. I mean, it was a good image of dad, but it was like a shrine. And we just are so cocksure about what's in our smartphone and, you know, and we just, well, Tim, you're telling me cremation is wrong and what are you going to do? David said that we shouldn't go see American Sniper or whatever it's called. And, and it's like, dude, if you want me to come back, give me some good news. <laughs> Who's laughing? I am, brother. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That's a nice laugh. It's not aggressive, right? Okay, all right. When I was young, after several of the deaths, I started getting facial tics. And you remember, you've heard Doug say that he and I got to know each other at a conference. And I don't remember Doug at the conference, but I remember the conference. It was Officers Christian Fellowship down in Virginia and dad was speaking, and Doug's dad was speaking. They were speaking together. They were friends. And Doug says, we built a dam together, which I think is interesting. Um, all I remember from that conference is that my father had taken me to a psychologist to try to figure out why I had facial tics. And... I remember my father, it just killed him, because I, this is literally what I do. I go, and then I go, <laughs> you know, I just had all these facial tics. And my dad just, it drove him wild. It drove him stark, raving mad. And I remember I sat at the very back of this room. There were probably 100, 150 guys, officers in this room, you know. And I'm way at the back, and my dad's speaking. And, you know, I'm trying to put myself so I'm, like, behind somebody so I can get my facial tick thing on, you know, without my dad seeing it. <laughs> in the middle of the talk, one time, he happens to look at me right when I'm, like, and I remember looking at his face, and he just died, <laughs> and he has to keep talking. I don't remember Doug Wilson, but I remember my dad. I remember him seeing me. Now... That became a joke in our family when we were claiming that we had it together. You know, and that it was cool. I'm cool, you're cool, you know what I mean, not mean, you know. And I would look at dad and, you know, dad would make a joke about, you know, Tim's going to be a trash collector. And I go, <laughs> remember this? I go, that's okay, dad. I'd say, go ahead, go on. Make fun of me. That's okay. It doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> you know? And the whole table would just die laughing, you know, because finally I had it under control. <laughs> and listen, this is what we're like when it comes to cremation, when it comes to American Sniper, when it comes to sexuality. We just, we just tell everybody... It's cool. 
We've got it together. We know the perfect place to stand in between God and hell so that we have plausible deniability and can continue to get a check as pastors. You with me? And yet, don't get called a cult. Right? Imagine if the Puritans had done this. Imagine if Luther and Calvin had been the way we are. Things were much worse at their time than they are today. And those men, their lives were on the line. Imagine being reduced to your only protection being squirreled away in the castle by Frederick, the elector. And then having Satan attack you in your room and you throw your ink bottle at him. I subscribed to a number of Orthodox Roman Catholic publications through the years. You would not believe the things that they say about Martin Luther. It's mind-boggling. And you can't have read two pages of Luther and believe it. They haven't even read two pages of Luther. The tenderness of Martin Luther's conscience, his love for the Lord, his awareness of his sin, him at table talk, him talking about the time he came down from upstairs sleeping all night and his wife Katie was up, and he sees that she's dressed all in black. And he reports that Katie, well, maybe it wasn't him. Was it him that reported this? It had to have been him. He came down, he looked at Katie, and he said, Katie, who's died? And she said, God. And he said, that's blasphemy. How could you speak that way, woman? And she said, well, the way you've been moping around the last couple of days, I figured he must have died. (laughs) And this is Luther? This is a man who obviously knows himself, right? Knows his sins has a wife who is not afraid of telling him his sins. And so we look, at the, we look at the practice of cremation today. You've heard the scripture I've read to you. You've heard it. I have a whole bunch of John Calvin to read to you. I won't. But can you trust me that Calvin is absolutely death on cremation? And then you go forward in history. It's the universal witness of the truth. And in the 60s, there was this book produced that that a guy called every single denomination up and asked them what their position on uh, cremation was. And listen to what, listen to who thought it was okay and who thought it was probably not good and who thought it was, who prohibited it. Because I think it's a telling group of people or of denominations, okay? Must be right at the very end of my 35 pages. I mean, you should hear Augustine on this. And Augustine's come, it's in City of God. So it's right where he's dealing with the barbarians taking over Rome. And what have they done? They have absolutely decimated the church. And they have denied burial to the Christians, right? Does this make sense to you? And so the first thing he does is explain that them denying burial to us doesn't influence in one iota God's resurrection of the body from death. All right? And then he goes on and talks about why we honor dead bodies and bury them. So the context is the denial of burial to the Christians at his time and the reassurance that that's not anything to worry about. And then he talks about the nature of loving the body that, that, that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, forget about who 
who, who was I going to talk to you about? Yeah, I forget the denominations. I will tell you that the Afrikaners and the CRC are the only reform people that are opposed to it. PCUSA, Cumberland Presbyterian, all, no big deal, you know, we're above all that, you know. Okay, um, listen to this. Cremation has become so popular in Colorado that the National Funeral Directors Association, which tracks it, estimates three in five in-state deaths will end with cremation by 2010. Quote, people are taking back and customizing the rites of passage, said Stephen Prothera, who wrote a book on cremation in America and chairs the religion department at Boston University. In Colorado, partly because of the independence, the lifestyle, it takes another level, he says. Doesn't it sound like typical academic, you know? Yeah, it takes another level, you know. You know what I'm saying? You know what that language is in the academy. It always means we've evolved yet again. We've progressed. We're on another level. You know, Colorado's on another level, you know? Right? Boulder's on another level, right? There was a time when cremation was looked down on like only poor people did it, said Mark Chavez, whose company is a contractor for six funeral homes. Now we're the norm. Experts say Colorado is a prime example of the post-death frontier where populations of tradition skeptic, tradition skeptic, tradition is what? The democracy of the dead. Tradition skeptic, highly transient, educated, and environment, environmentally friendly people gather. Isn't that a wonderful combination there? A study released last year by the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College, Hartford, Connecticut, showed that the Rocky Mountain West had a high proportion of, quote, nuns, people who claim no affiliation with a religious institution. In most states, especially the South and Northeast, families often defer to centuries-old religious rules that proscribe how to handle death. Cremation was taboo. Was tr cremation taboo? You know what the word taboo means. It means that it's something that stupid people just feel uncomfortable about. Was that the, pr the position of Augustine and Calvin on cremation? Cremation was taboo in many Christian religions until recently and is encouraged in the Hindu faith but still is strictly forbidden among Orthodox and conservative Jews. And so to this day, nobody in the Orthodox community ever cremates. Nobody. Okay? Quote, cremation was my way of taking death back, says Saul the Aurora man, who will have his wife of 52 years spread in at least three places. Quote, I didn't let religion dictate what should be done, unquote. Taboos and dictating, you know? In one 2002 case in Boulder County, which is where Mary Lee and I lived uh, and knew Rich Bledsoe. A dead woman was put on plywood, covered with a burial shroud, and cremated on her land, and it was totally legal. Quote, she just couldn't burn in a no-burn day, says Jeff Webb, assistant fire chief at the Boulder Rural Fire Protection District, who witnessed the cremation with three other firefighters. Ray Ann Morey, owner of Denver's Monarch Society, says on rare occasions she never even sees the family. Quote, it's a phone call, an email, a fax, and an address to ship the ashes. She opened her business in 82 and performs 30 cremations a month. And then she says this, listen, quote, in this day, it's like people, <laughs> I love that. 
In this, we're talking death, we're talking the burning of the body, and she says, it's like, it's, in this day, it's like people don't have enough time to handle death, unquote. Those who visit the Monarch Society's downtown office sit in a parlor as classical music plays over a stereo. They peruse medallions that handle a few ounces of cremated remains and sort through photographs of urns with names like Aristocrat and the Cesar. On a mantel next to several painted boxes is a crystal-like ball with remains inside that are spread out like glitter. Quote, you'd never know, Maury says, that someone's in there. Unquote. Cossie, who came to Mori after her husband's death last year, purchased a wind chime that unscrews at the top and holds a tablespoon of ashes. Quote, sometimes I put it outside, the Aurora woman says. I sit on the porch and think about the good times. Unquote. In Touchstone magazine, Southern Baptist leader Russ Moore wrote, quote, I knew my grandfather's funeral wouldn't be elaborate or expensive. He was a big-hearted Baptist, generous with his grandchildren, but spending little on himself. This was a man who refused the luxury of air conditioning in South Mississippi, a place where most people consider air conditioning a necessity. He left instructions that he didn't want anyone spending money on a casket, embalming fluid, or an elaborate funeral. He wanted to be cremated, the cheapest way possible to dispose of his earthly remains. No one asked my opinion on this, but I wept bitterly at the thought of this great man being reduced to ashes in the twinkling of an eye. For Christians, death is sleep, and burial has always been our testimony to it being temporary. But one day... By the way, this is me now, okay? But one day, the sleep will end, and we will be caught up to be with our Lord. And we will not have new bodies, but the same old, very old bodies our loved ones planted in the ground. Note what is said in Mark 16.1 that David called attention to. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might come and anoint him. Yes, it's true that our bodies being burned, cremated by our enemies, will not hinder our being resurrected in Christ. But what a testimony to the Christian faith it is when we believers stand next to the grave of the dead in Christ and we say these words. So, so here, here is the end, men. The reason that we bury is because we're testifying that it's asleep and that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that when our loved ones put us in the grave and they minister to us after we die, <coughs> that our loved ones are not so sophisticated that they can separate our bodies from us. They're more direct. They think that that body they should love because that is you. Yes, your spirit's gone. But of course they love Jesus' body. How could you not love Jesus' body? It's the closest you could get to him. You remember Judas. He said it was a waste. The money could have been given to the poor, and this is American evangelicals today. 
you know, we're all so cocksure of having higher motives and more sophistication, you know. So the Book of Common Prayer from the time of the Reformation has these instructions. When they come to the grave, while the corpse is made ready to be laid into the earth, the priest shall say, man, any of you able to recite this? Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. Thank you, dear brother. What a view of death and life. We have a short time to live, and we're full of what? Misery. Misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth, as it were, a shadow, and never continueth in one stay. In, in the midst of life, we are in death. And of whom may we seek succor, relief, but from thee, from thou, O Lord, who for our sins... Art just are justly 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 displeased. Yet, O Lord God, most holy, isn't this incredible? Yet, O Lord God, most holy, O Lord, most highly mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior. Deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. And then probably one of my two or three or four most favorite pieces of music is by the English composer, go on, Philip. And the title of the song is what? And just sing it for him. You don't have to do the whole thing, but just sing it. But spare us, Lord, spare us, O Lord, holy, oh, going, oh, Lord. Do any of you know that? And it's the prayer book. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord most holy, O God most high, mighty. O holy and merciful Savior, thou most worthy judge eternal. Suffer us not at our last hour for any pain of death to fall from thee. Which is what Adam's now going to talk about. And then while the earth shall be cast upon the body by some standing by, 
the priest shall say, for as much as it has pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be like unto his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. And then shall be said or sung, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, from henceforth blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, even so saith the Spirit, for they rest from their labors. And then this prayer. Almighty God, with whom do live the spirits of them that depart hence in the Lord, and with whom the souls of the faithful, after they are delivered from the burden of the flesh, are in joy and felicity. We give thee hearty thanks, for that it hath pleased thee to deliver this our brother out of the miseries of this sinful world. Beseeching thee that it may please thee of thy gracious goodness shortly to accomplish the number of thine elect, and to hasten thy kingdom that we with all those that are departed in the true faith of thy holy name may have our perfect consummation and bliss both in body and soul in thy eternal and everlasting glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so men, you have to take it back. We absolutely cannot allow cremation to take over the church. And there will be many ways for you to do it. But it is a confession of faith. Who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.